When Doreen and I lived in Buffalo, New York, there was a uh, haunted house across the river in Niagara Falls that we would go to, and it was fun. But they started doing this thing where they would, you'd walk through the haunted house, and they would scare you, and they'd take a picture at these most intense moments. Well, I guess it became really popular, and so they've started posting them online. And so I want to show you some of my favorite that I found. Uh, These pictures crack me up. Okay, these are moments... Of being scared, and there's a flash that comes. They grab a picture of you, and it captures you in the most, most normal of fearful positions. Okay, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine being scared, and this is like your reaction. You have no time to be like, "Oh, I'm big and bad." No, this dude is jumping in the air because of how scared he is. Like, I love this about this funhouse. I mean, good night. Like, and the thing is, it really isn't anything too scary. It's just that it makes a really loud noise. This guy's holding hands. I don't know what's happening here. Um, <laughs> like, this one is awesome. It's like, oh, no, you don't. You ain't going nowhere uh, if I'm going to walk in this. And this one is my favorite. Okay, this one right here. There is nothing that these four men can do to, to talk about how they were not scared. <laughs> In this moment, okay? So these pictures, um, and, and I love them. You can go online and you can, t- you know, Google Funhouse Scare Pictures. There's millions of them now. But when we were in Buffalo, that was kind of a cool thing. And you get to come out and you get to see your picture and laugh at it. But now, I guess, because of the Internet, they're posting them all online. So it's no longer just between you and the Funhouse people, but it actually goes Internet fame. So, um But why I show you those pictures is because I feel like my face has been in one of those positions for the last six weeks. Uh, I tell you this because I've shared a little bit with people in general about where I felt my journey in all of this was. I know uh, Shannon talked about feeling like Jonah, uh, and he he compared his story to Jonah. Well, and and it was a very interesting thing because the Sunday that Shannon read his letter... Uh, and, and, and explained what was happening, and then I followed up. The third service, I remember standing back there, and I remember thinking, Jason, you need to go get in a wine press. And I'm not exactly sure why that thought, but I began to go, well, Lord, are you saying something through that thought of get in a wine press? And the only wine press story I knew of was the story of Gideon, and so I, re- I went to the story of Gideon to really begin reading it and to understand why wine press, why that thought, and that for some of you, you're like, what in the world? Why would that even be an option? Um, with all of that uh, being said, I know some of you have probably been talking about it. Um, some of you heard people talking, but the, the closing of the Grey Eagle gathering will happen on December 7th. It'll be our last gathering at the Grey Eagle. And on December 14th, we'll be gathering together as one body, two services downtown, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., still here at the Pillar. Um, we feel that that need needed to be decided upon. Um, and for me, it was the scared face, nonstop. Um, because here's what like, my conversations looked like this last summer. My conversations looked like this last summer, talking about when will we launch the Gray Eagle to be her own church? When will we launch to be not just two campuses, but one, camp, one church here, one church there? And what will that look like? And we started talking about a three to five year plan. God, did you hear me? I said three to five year plan on what I was going to be preparing myself to be ready for. Well, it wasn't three to five years. And so this, I mean, I feel like the dude who was jumping up holding somebody's hand because when Shannon and I sat across the table from each other and he shared with me, Jason, I'm going to be putting in my letter of resignation in a very holy and religious way. I said to him, shut your mouth. 
That's what I said. Because I was, I was like, is he joking? Come on, man, don't mess with me like that. Don't do it. Oh, wait, you're serious. And so when I tell you about the gray eagle, and I tell you about this, and I tell you that my face has been in one of those Niagara Falls funhouse modes for the last six weeks, I'm not joking. Because I'm telling you, when I stood in that back, back of that room, every single one of my insecurities, every one of my, um, my doubts, my fears, all of it just started, whoa. Hence the wine press. Hence the idea to go hide in a wine press. And, and I tell you these things about the Gray Eagle campus moving back to become one with the Pillar campus. Um, there's just some different reasons that that is important to us and why I feel like for me to stop making that scared face, I do believe there's some vision and some unity that needs to be continued to cultivate and strengthen, not to be thin, not to stretch thin, but to understand that it's really hard to, to communicate unity and vision and mission and all that stuff and be traveling back and forth and trying to do it in two places and all that different stuff. And so that was the, my primary reason for going, yeah, I think as we discussed with the elders and the staff and the jail leaders and said, this is, I think, a good thing because we're able to do what I believe the Lord is calling us to do, and that is to protect the unity, mission, vision of where we're headed as a church. The second reason is because of the nursery space needs. Whether or not you know it, the Gray Eagle nursery space that is set up every Sunday is nonstop baby stacking. That's what's going on in that nursery right now. There are babies flowing out of the nursery walls. It's incredible to watch. I'm just... Just kidding. Please don't report us. There's nothing wrong. It's just one of those things to where there's lots of babies. And to be honest, this last year, I was looking for another place to call our second campus home. Nothing was coming up. Here we have this incredible nursery space. It's just right there. And I'm sitting there going, God, why don't you just do that stuff before someone says, hey, I'm walking away and you're going to be the one who's going to be handed this. Why don't you give me those little insights before something like this happens? And no, it came after. And the third one is the reason it's moving so quickly is because we believe that if you wait till December 31st, the gray eagle kind of fizzles out. Because everyone's gone on holidays and everyone's away. And we don't want to do that. We want to celebrate the folks that have been at the gray eagle for these almost three years. And longer than three years because we were talking about planning stuff before that. So to celebrate on December 7th, we're going to have a gathering and we're going to eat together and celebrate and remember all that the Lord did through that time. And then on December 14th, you're going to see new faces that have come back or they're people that you don't know. All right. And so what I'm inviting you to in this transition is to say, uh, we don't know a lot, but I'm asking you for six to eight months to consider that, that let the dust settle, let things, let things work themselves out. For those of you that have never served on a service team, I'm encouraging you to jump on one now. It's all transition. It's all new. Everybody's going, I don't know what to do. I think I'll join a service team. There you go. There's your opportunity. Maybe you've never shook a person's hand in here. Maybe you need to shake a person's hand and be like, hey, are you new here? And they'll be like, no, I've been here for years. Now you can use the excuse, oh, I was over at the Gray Eagle the whole whole time. And uh, so now I'm getting to know new people. And even if you weren't at the Gray Eagle, I will let you use the Gray Eagle excuse. So now everyone has a reason to shake hands. Let the dust settle. Time is the only thing that's going to help us get through this change, and time is the one thing I can't speed up or slow down. And I'm telling you, with all this transition, with all this shifting and all this change, it's just it's us waiting on the Lord, really. It's us just going, God, what do you want to do? Because if we're tasked to be a downtown, a downtown church 
which I do believe we are tasked to be in this space. And what's that going to look like? How are we going to move? How are we going to live? How are we going to breathe among this city and be the salt and light that you called us to be? And so I just want you to be aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. But I told you the wine press thing, and that's, it's mainly because most of you don't know all of my story, and I don't share all of my story a lot because there's nothing grandiose about it. There's nothing powerful or magnificent to my story. When I was uh, 17 years old, I had just realized that I desperately needed Jesus, and the church that I start, was a part of, the youth pastor recognized that I had come to know Christ, and he said, have you ever taught anyone anything? And I said, absolutely not. And he said, good. Take this book and go talk to those seventh graders. What? I don't know how to do any of this. And he was like, well, do you know that, that Christ died for you? Yeah. Do you know that, that he, he desires to live with you? Yeah. Tell him that. Tell him that every week. All right. So, I mean, I did that. And we duct taped a few of them to the doors. And that's awesome. Seventh graders love that. They actually asked to be duct taped to doors. So it's like the perfect ministry for me. I love duct tape, and I only knew two things. And he said to tell those two things to those seventh graders over and over. So that's what I did as they were duct taped to a door. But the only reason I did it was because I really believed that God would be with me when I did it. You know, that, that decision led to me going to college. And after a year and a half of college, recognizing that the Lord was saying, I need you to step away, and I need you to go. And it wasn't popular. It wasn't the world's wisdom, the world looked at it and was like, you're a fool, you'll never go back, you'll never get your education, you'll never do these things, you'll never accomplish this or that. And the only reason I did it was because I knew the Lord would go with me, because everything else said don't. And then as I stepped out and did that, and I spent a year in the mission field of the United States traveling and speaking to middle school and high school students in a public school setting and challenging the church and doing a survey and got to see everything across the country, the state of the union of the youth of America. And when I got back from that, I realized that things weren't going to be the same for me. And so when I went back, there were several moves that happened in my life very quickly. And the only reason I went was because I knew the Lord was going to go with me. I didn't have all the answers. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to live. I didn't know how I was going to make money. I didn't have all those proper parent, parental questions in order. But all I knew was that the Lord was going to go with me. And that move led to Wichita, where you know, I went to marry Doreen, and Doreen and I moved to Buffalo, where that move led to leading worship. I was like, I don't even know how to play a guitar, but I'm going to learn to impress Doreen. And so I learned to impress Doreen, and then the whole thing of interning as a worship leader pops up, and I'm interning and leading students in worship. I'm like, what? how did this happen? And God, you have to go with me. And, and then I got a phone call about coming to be a youth pastor at a large church in Nashville with no college degree, mind you, no seminary degree, mind you, nothing. Thing. And I went on staff of this large church in Nashville and for four years learned what to do and what not to do and how to do things. And that move led to eight years ago, Shannon and Sherry making a phone call about this church, Highland Christian Church in Asheville, to, to start doing something together that was going to impact the city and it was going to look different than what normal church may look like to some folks, but it'll be different in that it'll be this and this. And, and, and I didn't know all the answers. Shannon clearly didn't know all the answers because I could tell by his email. We don't know all the answers. And I'm like, okay. But it's as if the Lord said, I'm going to be with you. So we went. Three years ago, Shannon sits me down and says, you 
I'd like for you to consider being a campus pastor at the Gray Eagle. And, and I was like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to do that. But all I knew that was God was going to go with me. And so I say that to tell you that all I know right now is that God wants to go with me. But all I also know is that he wants to go with us as a church. Now, I tell you this from the perspective of Gideon because Gideon's story, I told you about the wine press, I told you about hiding, and, and you'll, it'll be all clear to you in just a moment as to why. But in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6 and 7, I'd encourage you to just go read those stories when you go home. It's an amazing story. The book of Judges is an interesting time in Israel's history where they don't, they don't have a king. They're unlike all the other countries because the only king they serve is God. God is their king. But Israel falls into this trap of this cycle of sinning and getting captured and crying out and God rescuing and sinning and God crying out and God rescuing. I mean, it's just this vicious cycle. And every time they needed rescue, God did what he called, he would raise up a judge. And we're not talking about Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown. We're talking about warriors. Like You can read about some of the judges that show up on the scene before Gideon. I mean, there's this dude, Shamgar, who kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I don't even know what that is, but I know he killed 600 Philistines with it. All right? So you need to read about Deborah. I mean, Deborah's song is incredibly gross. All right? What she talks about, how they took out the enemy's king, is cr- it's, it's crazy. All right? I love the book of Judges because it is very story-driven. And when you get to Gideon, this is where you see Israel at. And get in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Now, in this seven years, Israel was growing their own crops, have their cattle, all this different stuff. They have all the, the fruit of their, 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 they've worked really hard and they have all this stuff. But for seven years, the Midianites would come in and take everything. This is worse than a famine, really. Like to have all this stuff, and then, a, and then these guys come in and take all the stuff you did. And so it caused the Israelites to retreat and hide. And so in that hiding process, they're all crying out. They're like, what's going on? Why is this happening to us? And God sends a prophet and says, look, I rescued you. I pulled you out. My grace was poured out on you. I rescued you, and I called you into a relationship with me, and I asked you not to worship other gods. You just don't listen. And so the next scene we see is this angel showing up. He's sitting in a tree, and I want to show you what an Old Testament wine press would have looked like. Now, you can see this picture. This one's kind of above ground, and it may have been one of the nicer ones. But typically, where you see those guys stomping, this would be ground level. And so there'd be a pit. It could be a hole down that they would be actually in. And so Gideon is actually at the bottom of the wine press, hiding out, sitting down there, Threshing wheat. Now, you can, I want to show you this other picture of what threshing wheat looks like. There's a couple of different ways you can go about threshing wheat, but one of the ways that I've seen done is this way, where basically the stalk of the wheat is, is kind of broken up, and what they'll do is they'll throw it up in the air, and the chaff blows away, the grain falls to the ground. There's a couple other ways you can do it, where you can beat it, you can have horses walk across it. You can, there's a couple of different ways to separate the chaff from the grain. But chances are, because Gideon was hiding... He wasn't doing any of this. He might have been trying to throw some up in the little hole, but chances are he was actually doing it by hand. Very slow and tedious process because maybe he didn't want to kick up any dust and let the Midianites know, hey, there's a whole big giant pile of, of grain we can take. I don't know. But we do know that he was hiding. 
And we do know that the angel of the Lord shows up at this tree. And it's funny because I can just picture the tree being right here, maybe the hole being here, and Gideon down there. And the angel is like, Greetings, mighty warrior! <laughs> and I, I can imagine Gideon looking up going, Yeah, funny, you're a funny guy. <laughs> you're so funny. But the angel says, The Lord is with you. And I love Gideon's response because <laughs> in verse 13, this is how he responds. Uh, Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Man, we ain't got nothing. Have you looked around? He's not with us. Where's he at? Just honest. The Midianites are destroying us. They're killing us. They're taking our things How in the world is he with us? And I love the angel's response. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Okay, well, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. And I can see Gideon kind of going, Are you kidding me? This whole thing? Lord, with what did you say? You say you're sending me? <laughs> well, okay. I was just kidding about all of that whole thing. You know what? We're doing just fine. Everything's good. I'm going to stay here. No, I'm sending you, Gideon. Now, something, if you can throw that verse back up on the screen, I want you to see something. The Lord said, the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have. Does it say there that the Lord says, Go with the strength, the Hulk-like strength I am going to give you when you get on the battlefield. No. It does not say that, does it? It says, go with the strength you have. And I love Gideon's response in verse 15, because this is the strength he has. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. God, you basically picked the worst person for this job. That's what he says. Not only am I the weakest, my family is the weakest, but I am the weakest in my family. Do you see what he's doing there? He's going, my family, we are not known as, I would say, fighters. We're kind of more of the, you know, we, we do what the, the uh, possums do. We play dead really well. And he's giving every excuse that he can. And obviously his idols are revealed in that moment. What he's saying is, this is what I see in me. I just don't trust you, God. That's what he's saying, really. When you get down to it, it's, our, it's unbelief. It's not humility to say I'm the weakest and you can't use me. It's not humility to say that. It's unbelief. That's what it is. At the core, it's us going, God, you're not right. It's really what it is. And so when Gideon comes to this understanding, uh, you know, he says, all right, I just explained to you what strength I have, and you're still cool with me going. I love that God's just like, you know what? You're the weakest. Your family's the weakest. Perfect. I can use that. I like them odds. And so Gideon, in his fear and in his doubt and his anxiety, comes up with this plan. He's like, all right, God, here's, I, I'm gonna, I just have to do this one thing. I'm going to go make a meal real quick. I'll be right back. Goes, makes a meal, brings it back. Lord, like, boom, destroys it with fire. Just out of nowhere, just boom. And Gideon's like, whoa, I'm totally going to die. I tested the Lord. He's going he's gonna to light me on fire right now. 
And I love the Lord's response in verse 23. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. See, when I was in high school, before when, um, when I was playing basketball, what I would do as I finished up a practice is I would shoot baskets, and then my last shot, I would go, all right, God, if I make this shot, I'm going to have a good game. All right, I mean, the next one. If I make the next one, I'm going to have a good game. I would do these little superstitious things, and I would always tell myself, if I make this basket, I'm going to have a good game, and everything will be all right. And you, you, the reason we do that is because we just want to know that God's going with us. That's really it. That's, that's why we're like, all right, God, now, if you do this, and then I, I, and I'll do this, okay? Really, the reason we do those things is because we just want to know he's going to go with us. And that's what Gideon was doing here. And how kind was the Lord to meet Gideon in all of his fear, all of his anxiety, all of his worry, all of his doubt. And I love that because sometimes in the church, we're like, if you don't have faith, the Lord ain't going to use you. You don't have strong enough faith, and you ain't, you ain't going to be used. I don't see any faith in Gideon. I see a kid that is broken, that is weak, and is readily available to admit that. And what I see God do is go, I can use that. Now, there is a point where Gideon had to go, all right, <laughs> here we go. And you'll find out that it's not the last time he asked the Lord to prove to him that he's going with him. The first thing God asks Gideon to do, brave, brave Gideon, go stand in the middle of the city and destroy all the idols that these people worship. Excuse me? I just said I'm the weakest. Uh, okay, 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 okay. You burnt up that meal. I'll go do it. But what's interesting is, look in verse 27. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Brave, brave Gideon. I mean, I don't know what it's like to chop down other people's towering idols. I'm assuming it's pretty noisy, though. I mean, evening, neighbor. What are you doing? Nothing. I don't know how that works. I don't know how late at night it was. But I do know that he went out at night. And the Lord said, when you cut all that stuff down, go and get a bull, sacrifice it, and use their idols as fuel for the fire. (laughs) Gideon's like, okay, God, you're killing me here with all these requests. This is getting a little tough here. But he does take care of business. Some little things happen. You can read the rest of that story. But then we have to get back to this whole rescuing Israel thing and an army that he has to... Go against? In verse 33, again, here we go. Soon afterward, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. The army gets bigger and it gets closer. Like, do you, I mean, everything is going against this idea that Gideon could provide the rescue that is needed for these people. I would at, at some point, I would just be like, God, are you kidding me? I just did this, and now the army gets bigger? I thought maybe if I did this, some of them would run away, because they would know I was serious. I cut down some idols in the middle of the night. They're going to go running in fear from me. It didn't happen. The army actually got bigger when you look at it. 
And so it's came time, and Gideon gathers his army. 32,000 men come and hang out with him. And they're like, we'll go to battle with you, Gideon. 32,000 men, and you're sitting there going, yes! I don't know what it's like to gather 20 people, but to gather 32,000 people, we're going to go and we're going to take care of business. Judges 7-2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you, all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Come on! Really? Like 32,000 versus 135,000. God, that's one to four. I like those odds. These guys are pretty strong. They're pretty tough. They could go, they could take four guys. If they all just beat up four guys, we'll win this war. One to four odds. I like those. Gideon. You're going to boast about what you can do if I let them go with you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell those who are afraid to go home. Are you serious, Lord? That's the out you're going to give them? That's like the easiest thing in the world for anyone to walk away with. Why would you say if they're afraid? All right, guys. If any of you are afraid, go home. 22,000. Peace out. What? (laughs) Are you serious? Like you're sitting here going, this just, only in the mind of God does this make any sense. 22,000 go home. And so I know Gideon had to be doing the math. 10,000, I got 10,000 men left, 135,000, carry the one, one in 13. All right, one man for every 13 enemy warriors. All right, I could, okay, they're a little bit Jack Bauer-ish. They might be able to take 13 of these guys. I think that could work. That might, might happen. Gideon, please, Lord, no. I have a drinking game. I want you to play with all of your your warriors. What? A drinking game right now. We're about to go fight, and you want us to go play a drinking game? Yes. I want you to take all 10,000 of those men down to the river, and based on how they drink that water is going to determine who's going with you. Okay, please, 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 God, let a whole bunch of guys do it the right way and not a lot of people do it the wrong way. Come on! Oh, no, he starts doing the math. There's like, there's only like 300 of these guys doing it. Oh, no. I know what's going to happen here. God says, look, the ones who go down to that river, stick their face in the water, they're out of here. The ones who lap the water up from their hands to their mouth and lap it like a dog, they're going with you. Now, I've heard this taught that those 300 were the mightiest and the bravest warriors because they were alert and ready to do their battle. They were looking around and making sure the surroundings were under control. That doesn't fit with the narrative of the story, though. I bet those 300 guys were the guys going, Oh my God, we're going to die. <laughs> oh, we're so going to die. I don't want to die. The, th- the other 10,000 dudes were like, I'm facing the water. I don't care if they're arrow shot at me. I don't care about any of this stuff. This is, <laughs> I have a wife and a child. I don't want to die. That's what I saw it as in my brain. Maybe that doesn't make sense. But it fits with the narrative of the story. And when you get the odds down to 300, it's one to every 450. So no Jack Bauer, no Chuck Norris, no nobody. And it's interesting, and I don't know if this is coincidence or not, but there was another time it was 1 to 450, and it was with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So I think God likes those odds. I really do. I think he really likes those odds. 
And so when you're, think, when you're thinking of the 300 who went with Gideon, you know, typically you might think of this image. And this is the image that's pretty popular, the 300 Spartans and the idea of all this strength. Well, I want you to think of the 300 in this way, if you will. I would like for you to picture <laughs> these 300. Because I can totally see Gideon looking over in there and going, I went to band camp with that guy. That guy was president of the chess team. He doesn't know how to use a weapon. Oh, come on. You're killing me, God. But him and his 300 men. I mean, you're, you're killing me here. And so the time comes, and uh, God is, is very kind to Gideon. In verse 9 of chapter 7, this is what the Lord says. He says, that night the Lord said, get up. Go down to the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. But, I love this, but if you are afraid to attack, I just want you to go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. Now, this is what is fascinating to me. The Lord went to Gideon and said, look, I, I know you're still afraid. I'm going to meet you, even in your fear and your doubt. I wanted you to do this thing. I want you to go down to the camp. And I just want you to listen to how they're talking. I want you to hear what they have to say. And when he went, he actually saw that the, the camels and the horse were as much as the sand on the seashore, too numerous to count. The army was unbelievable. And he goes and he stands, and he stands behind these two men talking. And this man, this, this warrior, this enemy warrior, says to his friend, he's like, dude, I had the craziest dream. <laughs> And his friend's like, tell me about it. And he says, um, it's kind of crazy, but this giant loaf of bread came rolling down the mountain and crushed our tents flat. Dude, that is a crazy dream. No, it's not what his friend said. His friend actually says this in verse 14. His companion answered, your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. Now, if I was a dude who just explained my dream to him, I'd be like, that was ridiculously specific. Like, that's really weird that you, I mean, that's crazy. Are you like a dream interpreter? No, dude, I just, just know my stuff. And I know the bread loaf dream. I've had it before. <laughs> I'm assuming it was a Jersey Mike bread loaf, not a Subway bread loaf, because those bread loaves would do nothing. They won't knock anything over. Um, anyways, Jersey Mike's, I, I love you. <clears throat> Subway, I don't. Um, but what's interesting about Gideon's response is he hears this dream, he hears the interpretation, and he falls down in worship at this moment. And I'm wondering if Pura's like, dude, don't not here. We're in the enemy's camp. Do not sing right now. Lord, I lift your name on high. Woo! I love you, Lord. You're the best. Woo! Hand motions. And I wonder if Burr's like, dude, you can't do this right now. You don't need to be doing this. But what we see is Gideon charges up the hill and he's like, all right, guys, it's time to take the enemy. Here we go. We're going to take him. And I can see the guys going, all right, all right. Gideon looks excited. All right, everybody, get in line. Grab your ram's horn and clay pot. Did he just say a ram's horn and a clay pot? Which line do we get in for the swords and the shields and the helmets? Come on, guys, ram's horn and clay pots. Here we go. Guys, did you not hear me? Ram's horn and clay pots. Come on. We're, we're, we're going to go. Come with me. And they, they're probably like, is this all we're using? Of course not. 
we're going to blow the ram's horns and we're going to smash the pots. I don't understand. Is that it? Is that all we're going to do? No. We're going to hold torches up in the air and then we're going to hold the, the horn up in the air. Guys, come with me. And the end of the story really is that of the Lord gives them victory. They go and surround the camp. They blow the horns. They smash the pots. I guess that's really intimidating sound in that time. I don't know. But they do. And the Lord causes confusion among their camp. And you see in verse 20, Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands. And they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. I kind of wonder sometimes if they misheard them. And the guys were like, A sword! Gideon! Lord, give Gideon a sword. I don't know, but they probably didn't. It was, it's, it's an error. I get that. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. Now, even my brain went to the after-battle bar scene conversations. When somebody finds out you're one of the 300, you were, in, you were one of the 300? Oh, man, tell us about your involvement with it. Did you take people out? Did you do it? I smashed a jar. I threw a jar down on the ground so hard. And man, when I blew that horn, man, it was awesome. You're so brave. I mean, I don't know. Even in that conversation, the Lord gives them no room to boast about a thing. And this is how he works. This is what the Lord does. And this rescue story that Gideon provides Israel is not just an isolated incident. It is how God establishes himself as rescuer. It is weakness that is boasted in, not strength. This is where I believe we're called to stand in the middle of the city, not in strength, but in weakness. Now listen to... um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and this is why I tell you that the rescue plan is is one thing. This is not an isolated incident. This is everything. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You know, as the the worship team, you guys can come on up, and we're going to close in worship, but... When I look at this story, the weakness of Gideon, the weakness in what appeared to be death on a cross in Christ, the defeat that the world looks at that and goes, that's ridiculous. You people who believe that grace is a real thing are out of your minds. Paul dealt with the same thing in his day in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1. Listen to God's grace plan and how foolish it looks. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. In a culture that laughs at faith, and laughs that there would be a way to know God, to be with Him, to be rescued by Him that is not dependent upon works, is foolishness to the world. 
But there's a reason. In verse, in, Paul continues in verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And finally, we remember this foolishness and what it actually means for us in verse 30. God has united you with Christ. You didn't unite yourself with Him. God did it. For our benefit, God made Him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us. You did not make yourself. I did not make myself. God Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the Scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. This is what it means to worship. This is what it means to worship. Not to think about how weak I am or how strong I am, but to think about how strong the saving hand of the Lord is. That's what it means to boast in the Lord. We're not called to be people who talk about how lame we are because we're full of how awesome God is and what He's done and how He's pursued us and how He's rescued us and how He's pulled us out of the pit, out of the kingdom of darkness according to Scripture and put us into the kingdom of His dear Son. This is what we're called to boast in. and This is what I believe is what we're tasked to boast in downtown. Not boasting in our strength, not even boasting in our weakness, but boasting in the Lord and what His rescue looks like. I don't have all the answers. Our staff doesn't have all the answers. Our jail leaders don't have all the answers. Our elders don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. Let's stop pretending like we do and just say, God, we'll go if you'll go with us. That's what He's inviting us to. I'll go with you. And that's where we put our trust. So why don't you guys stand, we'll pray. Lord, I thank you that it's weakness. I thank you that the way to know you is through admitting our weakness. And that's the start of the journey with you. And we don't actually grow to be stronger and stronger, stronger, stronger people. We, we, we realize our, our boast is in you more and more, how weak we really are. But God, that's not even what we boast about. We boast about how strong you are, how you met us, how you rescued us. Thank you so much for doing that. You ran after us when we were running away. Let that be our boast. In your name we pray.